This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. It's safe to say that 2017 has not been the best of times when it comes to climate. The most powerful hurricane ever recorded. The, the United Atlantic States will cease. The iceberg has uh, broken off. All implementation. Fires scorching Southern California. Of the non-binding Paris Accord. But if we've learned anything this year at Climate One, it's that now more than ever, climate solutions are all around us. I see a world where left and right come together for a green energy revolution that is enveloping our nation as we speak. Everyone sees this technology on the horizon perhaps coming even faster than we all would expect. Come on, man, let's go. This will be cool. Let's make changes. Chaos and Progress, a year of climate conversations. Up next on Climate One. Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment for more than 10 years. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's show, we look back at the climate stories of 2017 by listening to excerpts from a year of climate conversations. 2017 began, of course, in the aftershock of Donald Trump's election, with wildly varying predictions about how much of a dealmaker the new president might be on climate. In a program recorded immediately after Trump's inauguration, Greg was joined by a panel of climate-friendly Republicans to talk about where their party was on climate and where the new administration might take it. Among them was Bob Inglis, a former Republican congressman from South Carolina who lost a primary after he spoke up in favor of accepting climate science. With the party now controlling the presidency and both houses of Congress, Greg asked Inglis about the collision he saw between the conservatism of mainstream Republicans and the populism of Donald Trump. You know, my view of Donald Trump is that he has no settled view on anything um, and that it's a fire. And if you think you can direct fire, you're wrong. Um, it, it consumes. It's pitchforks and torches, and it's a very um, excited thing where you can get people all charged up and you can march downtown, you can burn down some houses, but you can't build anything because there's nothing to build with. All you got is anger and pitchforks and torches, and those aren't good tools for building. You got to have some other things to build with, and so... I think we are facing the conflagration between conservatism and populism. I'm happy to be in the conservative vehicle because it's got a real steel bumper on the front, and that populist thing is plastic in the front. And when they collide, we actually believe something as conservatives. Populists don't believe. It, it, there's no settled belief. There is no philosophy to it. It's just I'm mad because globalization and automation are threatening my developed world future, and I'm mad as heck. That's all it's about. Conservatives are people who have answers to how you deal with that. And so I think that um, the, the risk that we're running as conservatives is for the last eight years, we all lined up and said, it's a secret Muslim, non-American socialist in the White House, it's all his fault. 
globalization, automation, the decline of the car, and the pace of cultural change. Those are all Barack Hussein Obama's fault. Um, and so there was this lockstep that developed, lockstep opposition. That is a very dangerous thing right now. Conservatives need to find the courage. Republicans in the House and the Senate need to brace themselves with the courage of being able to face him, Donald Trump, and say, we're not following all that you're saying. We will oppose you. And we will stop you if you start looking authoritarian or if you start looking like a populist who's out of control. We will stop you. And so it's very important for us to be speaking to one another as conservatives. End of the lockstep stuff. End of the oppose everything. Begin this thing of saying, okay, we're going to sift through it. The wheat and the chaff. And if there's chaff, it needs to get gone. And if there's something good in what Donald Trump's talking about, then let's do it. Jeremy Carl, your, your take on that. I am, I'm not as critical of uh, either the Trump administration, um, although I think certainly people have raised valid concerns, or necessarily of the place where the party um, is as a whole. I do think that there, is, um, uh, there are points of collision between populism and conservatism. Um, there are going to be places that I actually don't think the GOP will just follow Trump wherever he wants to go. So I'm not particularly worried about that. I do think that there are actually um, ways in which this election cycle exposed that both of the parties had really kind of gotten out of touch with their voters. Um, so uh, you know what, what that all means for energy and the environment is unclear, but I actually think one of the, the nice things about uh, this, the situation with Donald Trump is he's not wedded to, you know, I've run on these five very particular things and only that he's a deal maker at the end of the day. And I think if somebody puts a good deal on the table, um, I think it's surprising what we could get done. I'm actually much more um, cynical or skeptical, if, if you will, about the Democrats' interests in doing that, because I actually think that you could do a very interesting deal that would be very good for the environment, but I'm not sure that you could bring the environmental groups along. I think you could bring some Democratic office holders, a significant number, but I don't think... The Democrats have always kind of felt like, um, when I've had conversations with them about legislation, that they were negotiating between themselves and the environmental groups. And no, you're negotiating with the Republicans, and I think that's even more true now. Um, and that means you're not going to get everything you want. And the Republicans are not going to get everything that they want. But I think that there are absolutely deals out there to be done. I'm just skeptical that we're at a place right now, politically, with the left and right, where we could get to a deal that would, would be agreeable to both parties. That's Jeremy Carl, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, speaking about the prospects for Republican action on climate as the Trump administration took office in January. Despite his worries, left and right did come together in Washington a few months later, when Greg Dalton was joined for a special Climate One program by two clean energy advocates from opposite sides of the aisle. Debbie Dooley, a founding member of the Tea Party movement, and Mae Bovey, a leader of the grassroots organization 350.org. Both believe that clean energy is the way of the future. Where they disagree is how to achieve that future. Greg began by asking Debbie Dooley about her vision for America in an era of global warming. I envision that we remove the regulatory barriers that exist and allow energy to compete on a level playing field in the market. Uh, I fully and truly believe 
that moving to a decentralized power structure, for example, rooftop solar is in our national security interests. So I, you know, I envision tens of millions of rooftop solar installations on homes. Uh, I envision sooner or later Republicans coming to grips with the fact that fossil fuel is damaging our environment. I don't see how they cannot believe that fossil fuel is causing damage to the environment. I see a world where left and right come together and we work together for a green energy revolution that is uh, enveloping our nation as we speak. 75% of Trump supporters like renewables and they think we should do more to advance renewables. We need to look forward to innovation, to technology, to clean energy and job creation. Well, if 75% of Trump supporters support renewables, he's going in a different direction, trying to uh, drill off the coast, bring back coal. So is that upsetting to Trump supporters, or is it just not a high-priority issue for them? It's not a high-priority issue for most Trump supporters. And you have to understand, a lot of Republicans and conservatives don't like excessive regulation. They believe in competition and in choice, and, and that's something they believe in. They don't believe trying to regulate an industry out of business. But more and more people are embracing renewables. This is quite a change from the end of 2012, the beginning of 2013, when I first became a very strong clean energy advocate. People looked at me like I was from Mars. You're a conservative. You can't like clean energy. But I did. And one of the things, I spoke at Bloomberg's event, and I said, made this statement on the record, that I did not believe President Trump was going to pull out of the Paris Accord because it would be bad for business. And, I I mean, the genie's out of the bottle. It's not going to be put back in. I mean, clean energy will continue to flourish. Even conservatives are embracing it. And that was a poll that was taken in November that showed only 25% of Trump supporters believed in climate change, but 75% thought the nation should do more to advance renewables. Maybuvi, how does that compare with your vision for, uh, you're a very different place politically, but how does what you just heard compare with your vision for energy in America in a hot world? It does seem pretty clear that the belief that renewable energy is what we need, not only in this country, but around the world, is shared. More and more every day we're hearing this, that that consensus (laughs) is getting stronger. And there's just so much evidence that people are seeing their own economic development tied to the transition Mm -hmm. off of fossil fuels. So I think that is where we have room to build. And I think that belief is uniting people across political divides, across all the divides we see in our movements. So in that sense, I think there's a lot to work from. A lot of our work is focused on how quickly can we accelerate the transition off of fossil fuels. Because what we know about climate change is that it's already happening much faster than anyone expected. Our top scientists are horrified when they look at their own models, they look at the evidence, and they see what's taking place. So our concern is that the fossil fuel interests are standing in the way of that progress, and it's, it's their impact on the political process that we're contending with. So that is why we see people mobilizing in the streets. Today's historic People's Climate March, the Science March last weekend. There, there are 
countless mobilizations of people who are trying to move this forward. That's, I think, where the challenge comes, is that we do see a very strong role for government in bringing that transition about, because the scale of change required is so massive that it's hard to imagine doing that without the role of government. May Bouvi from 350.org, sharing the stage and a clean energy vision with Debbie Dooley, a co-founder of the Tea Party movement at a special Climate One taping in Washington last April. The March for Science and the Climate March showed us how many people were strongly committed to addressing climate change. And yet a little over a month later, President Trump announced, not unexpectedly, that the U.S. would withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord signed by 195 countries in 2015. That same day, we recorded a program looking at the Trump administration's energy policies thus far. Greg Dalton began by asking Jim Sweeney, who worked in Gerald Ford's administration and is now at Stanford University, what he thought when he heard the president's announcement. Look, at I was, we all saw it coming. It was a sad day because, one, climate matters. Two, because the Paris Agreement wasn't going to hurt our economy in the slightest. And because, finally, we have given up world leadership on yet another thing. And I think we've ceded world leadership on this to Germany and China. And so it was really, in many ways, very sad day for the United States above and beyond the climate issues because I don't think his pulling out of the climate agreement will actually make much difference on climate. I think it makes much more difference on giving up our leadership in the world. Amy Jaffe, how did you feel when you heard the news, when you, you saw that statement about draconian burdens and those sorts of things? You know, I was in line buying my lunch and I was sort of reading it um, on the sort of teleprompter, you know, what the TV was on silent. And uh, it was almost surreal. You know, I am a, always an eternal optimist. And I really, even though every day in my Twitter feed, it's like, oh yes, he's gonna pull out of Paris. I really kind of felt in my heart that it's such a stupid thing to do that in the end, it wouldn't happen, right? But I, I comforted- You thought Rex Tillerson could talk him out of it. You know, you know, the truth is, people were saying that Rex Tillerson was gonna talk him out of it. And you know, if you think about how far we've come in terms of corporate response to climate change and all these things, the idea that as a country, we were counting on Rex Tillerson to talk <laughs> some sense into the president, you know, is really sort of an amazing statement. But, you know, I talked to some journalists as it was sort of unwinding before, you know, today, and, and really, truly, a lot of climate policy in this country is both designed and implemented at the state and city level. Um, they're at the forefront, always have been in the forefront, and you just have to roll the clock back a little at a time and remember that under President George W. Bush, um, a lot of states took initiative. And I used to tell people when I give talks in Europe and people were so upset about American policy, about Kyoto, and I would say, well, you know, U.S. policy on climate is not actually made at the federal level. And even if you look at the Clean Power Plan, which was the fundamental showpiece of President Obama's signatory to this climate agreement in Paris. You know, most states in the United States have made their commitments under the Clean Power Plan, and most states are not gonna unwind those policies because they're driving uh, innovation in the state, 
They're attracting corporations that have already made commitments to renewable energy. Um, people are seeing it as future jobs. We've got China with a carbon price. We have Europe with strong technology drive coming from their car industry and from their trucking industry and from um, other, other segments. And so really, truly, um, when the president says that there were all these draconian things that his predecessor agreed to, a lot of those things are gonna stay in place. And one last point, not to overstate this, but the one thing that I might have guessed as an energy expert that the president would unravel and would make it hard for us to meet our climate obligation under Paris was that President Obama committed to have the oil and gas industry capture their methane leakage. And our Congress, surprisingly, sustained that policy, right? And so the president couldn't even undo that proposed regulation. So it is a little bit um, disingenuous to talk about these onerous things that we agreed to, since we're probably gonna do most of those things. Amy Jaffe, Executive Director of Sustainability at the UC Davis Graduate School of Management, talking about the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord. You're listening to a Year of Climate One Conversations. After a short break, we'll hear from some climate movie stars who joined Greg Dalton on the program in 2017. I was really and truly astonished at a lot of the things that were on film where I had actually forgotten that they were around because they were always uh, around. Al Gore and more when Climate One continues. We continue now with a look back at a year of Climate One conversations. Greg Dalton was among the thousands of Americans who saw Al Gore's Oscar-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. When the follow-up, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, was released in the summer of 2017, the former vice president joined us for a Climate One program along with the film's directors, Bonnie Cohen and John Shank. The movie includes Al Gore's statement on the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. Greg asked him how he thought that withdrawal would affect progress on climate. Yeah, I was really worried when uh, Donald Trump made his statement. I had tried hard to uh, convince him in personal conversations, uh, starting in Trump Tower during the transition, continuing in the White House, to stay in the Paris Agreement. I, I thought, I really did think there was a chance he would come to his senses, but I, I was wrong about that. But <laughs> when he did make his speech, I was uh, deeply concerned that other countries might have used it as an excuse to pull out of the Paris Agreement themselves. But I was immensely gratified when almost immediately afterward the entire rest of the world redoubled their commitment to the Paris Agreement. Almost, yeah. Almost as if they were saying, well, we'll show you Donald Trump. Uh, and, uh, and, and then here in this country, so many uh, governors and mayors and business leaders uh, are, are moving in that direction. And all of these groups have stepped up to say, we're still in Paris. We're going to meet the U.S. commitments regardless uh, of what, what President Trump does or says or tweets. And, we, we, uh, uh, and now the, the best estimates uh, give rise to a legitimate uh, uh, hope that the U.S. is likely to meet the commitments made by former President Obama in the Paris uh, Agreement, uh, regardless of, of uh, Donald Trump. Now, the Paris Agreement, um, even with 
even if all of its commitments by all 194 nations uh, are kept, is still not, not enough. We need to do more. But as the, and, and Bonnie and John document in the film how the cost of renewable energy, batteries, uh, electric vehicles, uh, efficiency improvements, all part of the broader sustainability revolution are coming down in cost so dramatically that uh, the world ha has the solutions now. And so I, I was uh, really heartened that the, the momentum generated around the world, not least by the Paris Agreement, uh, not least by the technology revolution, is uh, now going to continue moving forward. Uh, and others are, are, are coming to the rescue. Oh, one other point. The first day that the U.S. can actually legally leave the Paris Agreement, not entirely by coincidence, is the day after the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and so, and, the, and if there's a new president, um, the, the, uh, a new president can simply give 30 days notice and rejoin the, the Paris Agreement. So um, we're going we're gonna to win this. The remaining question is whether we'll win it in time. Uh, regrettably, a lot of damage ha has been done. We still have the opportunity to avoid the catastrophic results for human civilization, but w we have to build on this momentum and increase it. Bonnie Cohen, one of the, th the critiques of an inconvenient truth, it was long on problems, short on solutions, and one people thing people wrestle with in communications is balancing that hope and fear. Because you have to tell people how bad it is, but not put them into despair that they just are paralyzed. So how did you approach that in the film? To tell people, get that severity, but not bum everyone out so they don't see yeah, it. Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question. We thought a lot about this. And, you know, Al refers to uh, something called the hope bucket, that you have to leave people with enough hope that they're willing to act, that they're not paralyzed by the despair of the problem. And actually, when so participant media, which produ produced the first film, uh, when they got together with Al to talk about the sequel, that is exactly the nut of what came up. You know, we have to report on how far the climate crisis has gone. Um, Climate-related extreme weather is a lot worse. We have to talk about what the predictions were in an inconvenient truth and where we are now. But the great news is that there is a sustainability revolution underway now. The solutions are in place. The cost-down curves for solar and wind are extreme, uh, and, and, and it's time to act because there, there are so many things to do. So we had the great fortune in this film of uh, being able to have the hope built in and actually leave viewers, hopefully, with something really tangible to do. Filmmaker Bonnie Cohen, on stage with co-director John Shank and their star, former Vice President Al Gore, talking about an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. Another climate celebrity with a movie in 2017 was Bill Nye. As television's science guy, Nye inspired a generation of children to love science as much as he does. The new documentary about him chronicles his efforts to stop the spread of anti-scientific thinking around the world, mostly among adults. When he joined us at Climate One, Greg Dalton took the opportunity to ask this famous explainer about the connection between climate change and recent severe weather, starting with this year's fires. So it was big rainfall in the spring, then it got really dry and, and super hot in the summer. So when things started burning, there was a lot of fuel. And man, how many people were not affected by the fires? Yeah, everybody was affected by the fires. Everybody either was 
had their lives destroyed or uh, that you know somebody who had his life or her life destroyed. You guys, let's get to work on this problem. Come on, let's go. Uh, and Hurricane Harvey, Irma, Maria. Nothing what? to worry about. Everything's fine. <laughs> so there's everything all at once. There's, uh, you know, it's never, as we say in airplane crashes, it's never any one thing. So Houston has all this hardscape, uh, huge, fast, fastest growing large city in the U.S., maybe in the Western Hemisphere or some crazy statistic like that. And so there's all this uh, asphalt so-called sealed roads, uh, waterproof roads. And when it rained and stayed there, the problem just got worse and worse and worse. So my understanding is after Hurricane Katrina, people's houses were flooded and ruined and they lost everything. And if someone had gone to those people, they interviewed people and said, okay, here's half the value of your house and everything you own. Would you abandon your house? Everybody said, yeah. But after it drains and there is no relief, and you can't sell it, nobody wants to buy your soaked up house, you just stay. So then the problem happens again. And I wonder all the time, is there going to be a future? People just start leaving Houston, Corpus Christi, Pensacola, uh, Miami, Miami Beach. Those are two different cities. Just start leaving. And then is somebody going to go to New Orleans? Is somebody going to go in there and try to salvage all the copper plumbing and wire? I mean, is there going to be a salvage business we haven't even thought of yet? Wow. So the, it's the speed that's the problem. Let's get to work. And so that's really dark. How do you stay motivated Try to, to like... <laughs> oh, because... Oh, man. So do you, who is from Iowa? Anyone from Iowa? No hands. Uh, Iowa gets 25% of its electricity from the wind, competing head-to-head with uh, oil and gas. Uh, a friend of mine lives in uh, Coweta, Oklahoma, uh, Broken Arrow, um, 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 Tulsa, suburb of Tulsa, Oklahoma. They have earthquakes. They don't like earthquakes. It's from fracking. It's just like nobody thought you could frack to the extent that you'd have earthquakes, like magnitude five, like real things. And nobody wants that. And then Texas, get, in the springtime, gets 10% of its electricity from the wind. Now, I'm not saying the wind is the whole answer, but it just shows you what's possible. Oh, the other thing, young people, transmission lines, better uh, electric power lines. I mean, what we have doesn't suck, but we can do way better, I'm sure of it. So the jet fuel, transmission lines, solar hot water. Come on, man, let's go. This will be cool. Let's make changes. Bill Nye, the science guy, urging the Climate One audience to get it done. Nye's enthusiasm for science and climate solutions is contagious, and it stands in stark contrast to another inveterate optimist who was also the subject of a documentary in 2017. On her 83rd birthday, primatologist Jane Goodall joined Greg Dalton and an audience of 1,600 to look back on her pioneering career and to share stories about the progress on climate that she sees in her many travels. Well, of course, <clears throat> I can't resist saying that we're having this long discussion about climate change but it's a hoax. It was invented by the Chinese, right? So I don't know why you have this program at all. But anyway. So we should just talk about something else. 
No, there's a lot of bright, bright spots. This is it. I mean, people say, Jane, you can't really have hope because you've been around, you've seen the destruction of the forest, you've seen animals, species decreasing in number, you've seen the poverty and, the, you know, all the rest of it. But at the same time, I've seen incredible projects. I've met the most amazing people who are doing things to really make change. And we do need changed attitudes. But I described flying over Gombe and seeing 30 square miles of forest surrounded by bare hills because we began working, the Jane Goodall Institute, with the local people to improve their lives in a holistic way. There are no bare hills anymore. The trees have come back. And the chimpanzees have now more forest than they had. And we're protecting other areas where the forest hasn't yet been cut down. So this is one uh, bright spot, that bright spark that you're talking about. But, you know, travel around the world and see the incredible advances that are being made in ways of living in harmony rather than destroying nature, listening to nature, biodynamic farming, organic farming, small-scale family farming. Even the United Nations has said the best way to feed the growing population is small-scale family farming, not these monocultures. And please, let's eliminate genetically modified food. Let's eliminate some of these pesticide, chemical pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and that have been proven to be harmful not only to the environment, but to our health, our children. You hear we haven't inherited this planet from our parents. We've borrowed it from our children. We haven't borrowed our children's future. We've stolen it, and we're still stealing it, and we've got to get together and do something about it if we care about our children and our grandchildren. Jane Goodall and an optimistic prescription for our grandchildren's future. Some young people aren't waiting for their elders to protect that future and instead are going to court to press the government for more action on climate now. In 2017, Greg Dalton welcomed two young climate leaders to Climate One. James Coleman, a high school student and an action fellow with Alliance for Climate Education, and Karina McWilliams, an active member of Earth Guardians and other environmental organizations in Eugene, Oregon. Despite their committed activism, both have some ambivalence about the future as Greg found out when he asked them if they ever think about whether climate will affect their decision to be a parent. I think it will. Um, like, if I'm going to bring a child into this planet, will it be a healthy planet? Will they have the rights to clean water? Can they experience clean air? Can they go outside on the beach without being afraid of oil? These are things that we should think about, and I do not want to bring a child into a planet that is dying. Karina? Um, I kind of agree with James. Like, you know, if, if my child isn't going to have clean air to breathe, then, you know, is it, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be like doing that person a favor? Um, I think that's kind of the mindset that everyone should be getting into, that it, it's your children that are going to be having to deal with the effects of climate change, um, not just like, you know, people... 500 years from now it's happening today and like you know and tomorrow and then like you know in 10 years um it's just getting worse and worse and i think um that's a it's a really real question like you know you're y you are gonna have to deal with these effects uh yeah it's not abstract or far it's not just polar bears and pacific <laughs> islands james coleman 
What's one of your proudest moments of environmental activism? I'd say speaking out at the Stand Up for Science rally at the AGO conference. American Geophysical Union, huge conference of tens of thousands of scientists. You stood up in front of them, pretty brave moment. Yeah, that was my uh, first real moment of public speaking. I was extremely nervous, heart beating on my chest, but I got through it and I see it as a real milestone in my life. Um, I'm an aspiring scientist and as scientists we see that they stick to their labs, they stick to their science, they're not really out in the political world. But right now we're seeing that politics and science are merging together and that Scientists have to be a voice in our society. They have to get out. They have to tell us what the facts are and how we should use our policy to, to fight climate change. Karina McWilliams, one of your proudest moments. Um, I don't know if I could pinpoint one proud moment, but I know one moment that stands out, stands out to me is when I was with um, 350 Eugene and some um, employees from our children's trust at this pizza place before... Uh, a city council meeting one night, I think, or maybe it was in March, but um, one woman asked me, uh, where, do you, where do you find this braveness to do what you're doing and like speak in front of everyone and put yourself out there? And I think I replied with, um, it's like my responsibility. And I think that was the moment that I really realized that like I'm not doing this because, you know, I, I like, you know, being loud or talking a lot or like, you know, just participating in marches, I'm doing it because like I need to because I don't have a choice. Um, and I think more than just being proud, that was just a defining moment of um, my entire like career in, in climate activism. Let's give it up for these guys doing something really hard. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. Up next, We'll hear from more of Greg Dalton's guests discussing technology, transportation, and the wide world of sports. Sports is the opportunity to tell the story of high performance, that magical moment. And if that magical moment can be us coming together as fans to celebrate a team that wins, or us winning climate change. That's coming up when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. It's a look back at a year of climate conversations from 2017. One of the year's most highly anticipated events was the rollout of the Tesla Model 3, the electric automaker's first car aimed at average American families, which was seen by many as a make-or-break moment for the company and its visionary co-founder, Elon Musk. In July, Greg Dalton spoke to Musk biographer Ashley Vance and asked him what makes Musk so exceptional. I would say he is the most intense human being that I've ever met. That was clear to me. I mean, at, at Business Week, the New York Times, I've written about just about every CEO in Silicon Valley. And you know, it's not just like a type A personality, it's, 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 which there's lots of. There's, there's some <laughs> other level to him where he's, he's almost possessed. I mean, I, I think people hear about him saying he wants to create a colony on Mars. And I think um, some people think this is kind of silly or, or they sort of have a hard time just wrapping their head around, why would this guy want to do this thing? This is all, this is all just BS. He's just trying to sell. You know, it, it's just BS, right? It's just Make his money guy. off his rocket company. Right. But, but this is absolutely like his goal in life is to make this colony on Mars. And like every single thing about his life, including 
Tesla, to some degree, is, is, is in pursuit of this goal. And this is a guy who decided about 20 years ago that this is what he was going to do, and, and that he's also he's very driven, he's very logical. And so in his head, once he flipped this switch, that this is what he's going to do, basically every moment that he is not pursuing that goal <laughs> at, at kind of maximum force is just wasted time. I mean, he, he's like the most logical person I've ever met as well. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a one or a zero. And for him, this is what he's going to do. And tell me about his climate passion. He's very passionate about getting away from fossil fuels. This is climate one. That's yeah. a part of it. Uh, uh, so t where does that come from? And, and how did you encounter that in writing about Elon Musk? He just has the strangest form of empathy, I think, of, of anyone that I've met as well. The, uh, you know, there's people who worked for him for like 12 years, and he might know nothing about their family he certainly doesn't care what their mood is that day. Um, you know, he, he just doesn't care about any of those details. We, I spent many, many, many hours with him. He never once asked me, like, do I have a family? Do I, he never asked me, like, a single, single question about me. So he's, he's not really interested in individual people. But when we would talk about Mars, when we would talk about the climate, there were at least three or four times where he, he like, was literally in tears and and you know it's this very strange like empathy for the human species and and it's part of this logical mind of his i mean i think he's, he identifies that there's a problem and it needs to be solved and other people aren't doing that much about it and so he's like why would you not go pursue this it's, it's the same thing it is the same thing with mars i mean um you know part of it is like an escape plan the climate goes horribly wrong on Earth. But the other part of it is just this thing. It's like, you know, the human species may be wiped out. Why isn't, you know, if you can do something about that, you should. Nobody else seems to be doing it. I'm, a, I'm going to do it. But he really would just break down in tears when he would talk about these things. This is like what he actually cares about. Ashley Vance, author of Elon Musk, How the Billionaire CEO of SpaceX and Tesla is Shaping Our Future, on what makes the visionary billionaire tick. Whether luxury or affordable, Tesla cars have always been designed with the driver's experience in mind. But what if car ownership has hit a peak as autonomous vehicles and other mobility options gain traction? In 2017, Greg Dalton welcomed Amory Lovins to Climate One. He's the co-founder and chief scientist of the Rocky Mountain Institute and one of the country's foremost energy experts. Also on that program was Emily Castor, director of transportation policy at the ride-hailing company Lyft. Greg asked her whether robotic vehicles were more likely to alleviate or add to congestion in American cities. That seems to be the question that everyone's asking right now. Um, I think, you know, everyone sees this technology on the horizon, perhaps coming even faster than we all um, would expect. Um, and yet there's so many questions about the impacts. And I think a, a consensus that started to emerge from a lot of experts um, in academia and the policy sphere in the last 18 months or so is that the question of whether these vehicles will create congestion and emissions or whether they will reduce them will, in, to a large extent, extent be determined by whether they are personally owned or whether they are shared. 
And I obviously have uh, an investment, a you know, reason to believe in that viewpoint uh, because I work at Lyft, which is a, a platform for shared transportation. Uh, but it stands to reason that essentially if you take a vehicle that is capable of piloting itself and have it be owned by just one person, that there'll be a lot of other opportunities for sort of extraneous mileage and inefficient use of that vehicle if it's solely dedicated to that one person who only needs it a little bit of the time and would be inclined to let it, you know, drive around empty, perhaps, sure. um, circling the block. Or you send it out to mm-hmm. buy a six-pack. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> used, exaggerating the current inefficiencies of personal car ownership, if that were the ownership model, um, versus a scenario in which the vehicles instead are being highly optimized by a network, being filled with as many passengers as possible, picking up um, other individuals when one person isn't using them, um, and thereby finding ways to potentially reduce vehicle emissions, um, vehicle miles traveled and therefore congestion. So that, that question of whether or not they're shared or owned may uh, be a fulcrum on which that question rests. Amy Lovins, are the car companies going to sell fewer cars in this future? Where they, mm-hmm. right? And are they going to therefore fight it? Well, it depends. If they are ahead of the game, as some of them are in developing mo- mobility services, uh, they like this future of leasing mobility services in which the car is not a source of revenue on which they didn't make much anyway, excuse me, uh, from selling the car. Instead, it's a source of steady leasing revenue, and the cheaper the car is, the less cost they have in the leasing business. Uh, On the other hand, if they're stuck in the old commodity model of just moving the metal, the more cars, the better, uh, they will be seriously disappointed because the U.S. is probably going to have peak car ownership, according to a new analysis we just published, uh, about three years from now. What does that mean, peak car ownership, meaning that... You can't, are... you can't count on vehicle sales going up. They're going to start turning over and going down, just like gasoline sales have for the past decade. And part of the reason for that really is sort of the household economics of what this is going to look like once autonomous vehicles become available on a shared platform basis. Because today, if somebody in a suburb or a city is deciding whether it makes sense for them to own a car or to try to rely on alternative transportation options, they're looking at how much each of those things cost and and kind of comparing um, the cost profile. And today, especially if you live in a suburb, a place where transit isn't readily available, it's probably cheaper to own a car. Because, you know, Lyft has a certain cost that's baked in that's required um, to to compensate the driver. Um, There probably aren't a lot of other transit options that are available in that kind of a suburban environment. And so people choose car ownership. But in the future, when autonomy makes it possible for Lyft to offer um, reliable transportation on demand at a much lower price, that will democratize access to that service and make it suddenly much more financially attractive for the average consumer to make that decision and to be able to count on that transportation being available to them in a way that they've never been able to count on transit um, and really have that be the the no-brainer choice. So we're going to hit a tipping point when that happens. Emily Castor, Director of Transportation Policy at Lyft, on the changing automotive landscape. Another American institution working to reduce its carbon footprint in some surprising places is professional sports. Jennifer Regan is Chief Sustainability Manager at We Bring It On, a consulting firm working to clean up live entertainment in sports. Greg Dalton asked her about her first environmental job, building a greening program for AEG Worldwide. They are 
the largest presenter of live entertainment in the world. They are now they own sports teams like the LA Kings hockey team. They own arenas. They also have contracts to manage arenas. So they have over 150 stadiums, arenas, and music theaters across the world. And they have a whole music division that does Coachella Music Festival, that does Golden Voice concerts. And so a lot of the big acts that you see or buy tickets, anything you can buy a ticket to, AEG is involved in. And Philip Anschutz was also on the board of the American Petroleum Institute, which has been kind of slow down and block progress on climate that you've been working so hard on. Did you ever encounter any contradictions or pushback on or places that you thought it was not comfortable to go because of the oil and gas history of the company? And the Thank person? you for that. My rhetoric, 100 percent, was about best business case and efficiency. I could not talk about climate change as my business case in 07 and 08. My part of my job was to really educate and create a level of comfortability among the executives and really looking at climate change. So my key to success in the beginning was looking at all the benefits of climate change without necessarily calling it climate change. So you don't talk about the cause. Use business language. Yeah. Uh, so now sports, a very powerful place in American culture. More people pay attention to sports than the news or politics. Yeah. Uh, what do you see as the opportunity for American sports to bring about a cultural change? We're not seeing political leadership change at the national level. Currently right now, there's a revival of uh, climate denialism. What can sports do to move things forward on clean energy at this time? Mr. Anschutz and his entire executive team moved their position and came to a place of accepting climate change because not only through AEG, but Mr. Anschutz purchased Zantera National Parks and Resorts and got there one of the leaders in environmental park management. Uh And he also invested in a wind farm. And when he was bringing these experts in front of him, the information, the way it was being delivered, it became very clear. And so his executive team or some of the, the Anschutz Corporation, some of the biggest advocates at any of their, their companies on behalf of the environment. And so I think what I can learn from that and answer the question about sports is that um, sports is about high performance. And one of the things that many executives in sports talk about is the moment of truth. You come to an event to experience the impossible, the moment that someone hits a three-point shot 10 seconds before the buzzer, or when the score is, you know, we go overtime and someone wins from behind. And those are the moments that you really long for, or you hear your favorite musician hit a note in person that you've never felt in your body before. And I even see you lighting up when I'm telling you this, and I'm assuming the audience, just feel it in your body. There's movement, there's passion, there's connection. And so if you're in the stadium or in the arena, experiencing that and you're connecting on that level and you can also learn something else in a way that in that excitement that energy it could connect to you on that heartfelt way and I feel that as we explored as a business and we saw the fan engagement components and the sponsors respond the sponsors big brands like Coke and ESPN I mean they're already getting pressure from their industry to make these changes so for sports to meet them there And then for us to get back to that passion, that excitement, sports is the opportunity to tell the story of high performance, that that magical moment. And if that magical moment can be us coming together as people, as fans, to celebrate a team that win or us winning climate change. And so for those of us in the environment, it's not a far leap to think about us celebrating our wins as a community at our community gathering place. So for us, arenas and stadiums are the places where community gather. And sports are the things that the high performance wins that we celebrate. Jennifer Regan, Chief Sustainability Manager at the consulting firm We Bring It On, 
talking about the greening of live sports entertainment. Now Climate One also provides the audience with some high-performance thrills of our own. In the lightning round, Greg Dalton puts his guests through the gauntlet with a few hard-hitting true-false or word association questions. It's a chance for these experts to speak without filters, if they accept the challenge. We're going to go now to our lightning round. Uh, yes or no questions for each of our guests. This is where we get some laughs, make them slightly uncomfortable. First thing that comes to your mind, not thinking about... Sex! <laughs> Sorry. First for James Coleman, would you date a really cute climate denier? <laughs> if she was open to changing her mind, yes. Uh, Jane Goodall, you hug and kiss like a chimpanzee. True. <laughs> True or false, Debbie Dooley, Al Gore once called you his friend. That is true. He is my friend. True or false, May Boovey, you like Debbie Dooley more than you thought you would. True. <laughs> Amory Lovins, flying cars will be commercially available during your lifetime. Uh, well, I'm about 70. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> false. And if you love congestion in two dimensions, you'll love it in three dimensions. <laughs> True or false, Bill Nye, you started doing stand-up comedy after winning a Steve Martin look-alike contest in 1978. True. Everybody want to get small. Okay. No, it was that era. I had the era through the head. The, and so you guys, I met him eventually. It was cool. It was really a cool evening. Bob Inglis, yes or no, Donald Trump will serve out his four-year term. <laughs> No. <laughs> Amy Jaffe, true or false, you'd like to have Donald Trump over for dinner. Well, so I have to say, <laughs> I have to say to everyone, I'm actually a New Yorker, and I remember Donald Trump when he was a young man in New York. And that was a different person, I think, than we see on the national stage today. And that person was very entertaining, so just saying. So that's a yes. True or false, Jim Sweeney, you'd like to have a beer with Steve Bannon. Uh, what would I do with the beer? <laughs> do I have to actually drink it or could I pour it <laughs> on his head? Vice President Gore, what comes to your mind when you hear collusion? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> when you say no filter, I, you know, I spent a lifetime in politics. I mean, I, it's hard for me to remove the filter. But that's know, over now. First, first do no harm. I, I don't want to <laughs> say what really comes to mind. <laughs> okay. I guess. But you can probably guess. <laughs> Ashley Vance, the number of times you looked nervously over your shoulder while walking alone at night while you were writing the biography of Elon Musk. <laughs> It was mostly after the book came out that uh, the nerves really kicked in. Jane Goodall, your favorite drink? Whiskey. <laughs> James Coleman, if the suit about students suing the federal government is made into a movie, what actor do you think should be in it? Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Karina McWilliams, last question. What actor or actress do you think should be in the movie about young people going to court to protect their constitutional right to a healthy climate? Tina Fey. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. That ends our lightning round. Let's give a round for them getting through that. <laughs> mm. 
a little sample of the unfiltered truth and bare-knuckle journalism that went on at Climate One in 2017. We hope you've enjoyed this look back at a year of climate conversations with some incredible speakers. To listen to any of the complete programs, visit our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear more conversations about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.